Good Sunday, Northgate. It's time for the Sunday teaching. Changed my location today. I'm in the basement, the new section of Farrell Hall. Thought we'd uh, change it up a little bit. But let's get into God's Word this morning. We're going to look at the book of Titus and some verses in there. But before we do that, let's pray and ask God to bless His Word. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would speak to us through your word. Holy Spirit, we need you. Encourage, exhort, and comfort. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. So as we've been making our way through our reading schedule, we're almost done. If you're a little behind or a lot behind, don't worry. Just keep plugging away on your schedule or the own, your own schedule that you've made. But I read just today in the book of Titus, chapter 2, but I prepared beforehand a little section of verses that has been so meaningful to me over the years. And God has spoken to me through it. And I've taught on it before many years ago, but I pray today it would be an encouragement to you. The verses specifically are in chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. And they say this, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Verse 13, Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Verse 15, speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. So in that little section, especially the last verse, we understand that Paul the author is writing to a young pastor named Titus. Now, this little letter and the two previous in 1st and 2nd Timothy are called the pastoral epistles or the pastoral letters, where Paul is not writing a larger group or church, but he's writing to individual leaders, Timothy and Titus, challenging them, exhorting them, and encouraging them in the churches that they're involved in. So to get a little context that will help us to understand these verses, we know that Titus is receiving, Paul is writing, but where is Titus? It says in verse 5 of chapter 1 that Paul left him in Crete, Whereas Crete, Crete is an island, the edge of Greece, a long island. What is the history of Crete? Well, Crete wasn't the funnest place to be. It had its own reputation, as we actually see in chapter 1 as well. It says one of their own prophets speaks of Cretans or people from Crete, meaning their own poet or someone who knew them well said, they are all liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That's not a great way to describe your country or your city or your people. 
But history would tell us in commentators that even in the Greek language, there's a word that takes that thought, Crete, and it attaches it to being a liar. So basically, they were so known for being so dishonest and being, as it says here, lazy and gluttons that their name is synonymous with that. So in the Greek world, if you were called that, it's because you were a liar. So Paul here is telling Titus, and he calls him his beloved son, uh, just like he would Timothy. So he has a special relationship with Titus. And we actually see in 2 Corinthians that Paul is brought much joy by the coming of Titus. So they must have had a special bond. Um, Titus, his mentor Paul, and Timothy the same way, but he's left in Crete, this very difficult, sinful place, to set in order things that are lacking. So there was a network of home churches, and they were being challenged. They weren't operating correctly. So Paul says to Titus, appoint elders. And then he goes on in chapter 1 to describe some of the qualifications for elders, and we're not going to look into that. But he tells these elders or these leaders, because there's a problem in these Cretan home churches, um, probably with not detaching godly behavior with what they've known. He says, your leaders who you appoint, they need to correct those who are idle talkers, deceivers, he says, especially those of the circumcision in verse 10, Judaizers. So these churches are challenged, these home churches, by people, some Cretans. We don't know if they're leaders or just a part of the church, but they need strong leadership to correct them and show them godly behavior. Paul actually goes on to say, their mouths must be stopped. They're subverting whole households, teaching things which ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. So here they're actually looking for money too. They're living immorally. They're living as liars. They're claiming a relationship with Christ. They're doing it for dishonest gain. And Paul says, okay, Titus, you're in Crete. I left you there. Set things in order by appointing leaders who can correct behavior that is not something that should be a part of the church. So then he goes into chapter 2, and he tells us some qualities that should be a part of the church, not in reference to doctrine as much as behavior. He says proper doctrine or biblical doctrine will lead to sound behavior, but he's concerned about the behavior. So thus he tells older men, this is how you should live, sober, reverent, temperate, sound in the faith, patient, older women, likewise. And he gives them a list of behavior, young men and young women, and the older men and the older women should be investing in the younger ones to mentor them, to have a relationship with them, to teach them through sound doctrine what appropriate behavior is. Now fit this into the whole book, things are out of order, we need to correct it by leaders, elders, those older, by proper behavior, investing in younger people, mentoring them, discipling them to what proper behavior should be. And then we stumble 
upon these verses we read, verse 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15, but I want to focus on 11 through 13. The reason and the sound doctrine that's going to change behavior is this thing he calls the grace of God, the grace of God. And how I want to look at it today, verse 11 is God's grace in the past, verse 12 is God's grace in the present, and verse 13 is God's grace in the future. You see, we're nothing without God's grace. What's the definition of God's grace? Unmerited favor, receiving what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve, but grace is extra. You get something. And here in verse 11, Paul wants to show them what the grace of God is. He says it brings salvation and it has appeared to all men, has appeared. This is what grace looks like in the past. And when I read that verse, something really jumps out at me, but the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. Well, who has appeared? Jesus has appeared and his death and resurrection on the cross gives us this free gift of salvation and this hope of eternity. So the work he's done on the cross, that he came, lived a perfect life and died for our sins, is grace, something we don't deserve, something that we cannot earn. But in that grace, we have forgiveness. When he's talking to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, I love how he defines it too, not being ashamed of the gospel and grace when he says there, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, that would be Jesus, nor of me, Paul, his prisoner, but share with me in the suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The grace of God has appeared, and his name is Jesus. It's interesting when you look through the New Testament, and I've seen it over and over this time as we've read, that God often is described with the characteristic of love. Christ, Jesus, always defined, or a lot of the time, by grace, the grace of Christ. And it's such a beautiful picture because the Holy Spirit drives it in and how he's seen is to be in fellowship with him. But here it is, grace. You've been given grace. We teach that. We're saved by grace, Ephesians chapter 2, not by our works. And it's been given to us in Jesus. Note, has appeared to all men. Well, how does that look for someone who says, well, will everyone have a chance or hear the gospel? But it says here, the grace of God which brings salvation, Jesus Christ, has appeared somehow, some way. Romans 1, a little indication, maybe through nature or other ways, has appeared to all men, not some men, but all men have this opportunity. All people would say, have this opportunity to receive God's grace. And you know, I think for a long part of my life, that's what I always... Um, understood about grace. That was my definition of grace, was forgiveness and redemption, what Christ has done. And that 
for me, I would say grace is because I'm saved, I'm forgiven. And God has shown me probably in the last 15 years, there's something much more that grace does. And it's grace in the present. Note this. It says grace teaches us. It doesn't just bring us salvation. It teaches us. And actually the Greek word there is it trains us to do what? To deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. In their age, in our age, whenever we're living, grace forgives us, but it doesn't stop there. This unmerited forgiveness and love teaches us, it trains us to be holy, not to give in to sin, to deny what isn't right, to be righteous. And I love this, to be godly in this present age. Now look who he's writing to. He's writing to a church that would know about Jesus, but their behavior needs to be corrected. And he's saying, guys, listen, God's grace, sound doctrine is you're forgiven, but not to go sin, not to live in immorality, not to be liars or gluttons, but rather what it is in the present, this unmerited favor of forgiveness in our lives changes us to live amazing, holy lives. And I was thinking for many years, and I've been able to teach, well, how does grace train us? And I think this forgiveness, as we receive it and experience it, really draws us to this point of desiring to walk with God because we know, we've experienced, we understand his forgiveness. And because of that, we then in the present are motivated, empowered to live holy lives. Now, obviously, it's a journey for all of us. And there's some seasons where we go faster in being holy and other seasons where we go slower. But the idea is a grace that doesn't change you is not grace at all. A forgiveness, uh, this unmerited favor of forgiveness changes us to be more like Jesus. You know, when I hear the word teaching, I think of a classroom. It doesn't always have to be that way. But the word training, the actual word here, how grace trains us, is more of a practical, hands-on, like learning a skill. I'm out there doing it. If I was trying to teach you how to golf, and I probably can't do that very well because I'm not a very good golfer, we could watch a video and be somewhat effective. But if we go out on the golf course, we put your hands on the golf club, we teach you where to put your feet, we teach you how to swing, we see how you swing, we change the swing, you're being trained, hands-on experience to learn, to grow in that skill. And the skill here is becoming holy, but you need the hands-on experience of the training of grace, forgiveness, God's unmerited favor. And I think there's many biblical examples of that. There's Peter looking in the eyes of Christ, saying that he would never deny him. And yet the rooster crows and he looks in the eyes of his Savior. And I believe in that moment, he experienced God's grace and God's forgiveness. You see those who are healed, maybe 
physically, emotionally, where they experience God in his grace and how it changed them. Think of the woman at the well. When Jesus is stooping down and said, you know, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. She had a real training of grace that she wouldn't want to go back to sin. Have you had that? Have you experienced that? Do you know what I'm talking about? I have enjoyed certain clips for sure of that series, The Chosen. And when Mary, the one who was filled uh, with the demons and how they portrayed that, how Jesus looks at her and calls her name and she understands, she experiences the humanity. She's trained then by the forgiveness. She feels it. And what a powerful moment as Christ looks in her eyes. And then in the series, it goes on how she she stumbles and falls and she sees him again and she can't look at him. But Jesus says, look at me. Look at me. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. That's a training, understanding, being in that place where you know you failed, but you sense the forgiveness. I try to explain it to you if you're really dirty and you've been working out all day and you're caked with mud or dirt and you go in the shower and the water oozes off the dirt and the junk is the picture of the training of God's grace. And I've had experiences where people have caught it as you teach it and practically felt it in their mind and in their heart and it changes them and they know then the power of forgiveness and the power towards him and the Holy Spirit in them. And thus they don't want to live in sin. They become holy. They're changed. And that's what we want to experience. Not only knowing in the past Christ has forgiven us, but feeling it, knowing it in our head in the present to live, to be trained to live this holy life when in this present age some people think well it's so dark now and you're right it is dark but I want to tell you there's been previous times in history where it's been just as dark and just as difficult and there's other places in the world where it's very very difficult and we hear in the news even to be a Christian or even to live a holy life is so difficult in some cultures But here, grace trains us and changes us. Past, by Jesus appearing, dying on the cross. Present, Jesus speaking into our lives, his continual work, his grace, his unmerited favor to live a holy life. And verse 13, what is God's grace in the future? Well, it's looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We know he's coming back. We don't deserve it. We're forgiven by the cross. We're living holy lives in the present by God's grace. And we look forward to the unmerited favor, his grace of living in eternity, in paradise, without pain, without sin, without the darkness of this world, but just in the sweet fellowship of Jesus. And we look forward to that amazing grace where we can be with him. We can live in paradise and eternity. Wow, what a blessed hope, the joyful expectation of good. We have this blessed, joyful expectation of good, that his glory, Christ is coming back, that this world 
is not going to stay the same. It's going to be changed. And when Christ comes back, all is different. Now think together, context, Titus, order, churches, living in sin, not understanding doctrine. Here it is. Live different. Here's how to live, beginning of verse 2. Here's why God's grace. You're forgiven by Christ. He's with you now, and he's coming back. And this is an immensely powerful, encouraging word. And oftentimes, I think I repeat myself, but at the very, very beginning, I read that last verse in verse 15. To anyone who gets to teach or lead, it says this at the end of our section about grace. Speak these things. Exhort, challenge, rebuke with all authority. This is it. The rebuke, we're not to live sinful lives, but grace changes us. We're supposed to live forgiven lives looking for Christ. Let no one despise us as we teach the truth of forgiveness and holiness. Praise God. I was encouraged, Daniel, keep going, keep teaching this truth, not just once, continually to change us forever. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. We need you. Help us to understand, experience, to live in your grace. Praise your name. We worship you. We pray all these things, knowing that you've heard us. Use this word for your glory. Amen. We'll see you later.